Good morning. It is 10.07, and uh, coming up in about 15 minutes, we have the uh, Republican National Committee Midwest Regional Communications Director coming on board, Preya Samsunder. Uh, and uh, the uh, the topic, of course, is with the coming election, the economy, inflation, uh, the border, uh, since Biden decided to dump the numbers uh, at 10 o'clock uh, on Friday, uh, she'll She'll be on board. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Preya will be on board uh, to talk about that. Uh, but right now, it is the Show Me Institute that's with us, uh, and that is the incredibly talented Miss Brenda Talent, talking about the uh, NAEP scores for schools for 2022. Brenda, welcome. How are you? I am doing great, Gary. I hope you're doing well too. I am indeed. So, how does Missouri look? Where do we stand uh, with these uh, latest scores? Well, I think it's time for parents and taxpayers to pick up their pitchforks and storm our capital and say, this is not acceptable. Um, we, we saw a precipitous drop in our scores. Gary, um, the nation's report card gives us scores based upon the number of students, percentage of students who've taken the test who are proficient, meaning that they know the subject, that are a basic, which means they have a partial understanding of, of the subject, and then below basic, which obviously means they don't. And in Missouri, for fourth graders, for reading, we just have um, uh, 30% uh, who are proficient or above. In math, 34%. And then when we go to eighth grade, we have for reading, 28% are proficient, and 20 Four percent in math, and so what? What does that mean? Well, when we look at just base, the low basic. So I told you who's above proficient. Let's throw out the kids who have partial knowledge, but we have kids in in fourth grade, forty percent who are below basic, which means they they don't even have a partial mastery of the subject. Uh, we have been declining for years. I mean, if, if we go back in time, um, you know, 2009 or thereabouts might have been our high point, but we've been on a steady decline. And, and here's the thing, Gary, I guarantee, well, I don't have to guarantee you, I can tell you already. Uh, everyone's saying, nothing to see here. It's the pandemic. Well, in Missouri, it's not just the pandemic because all, all that's happened is we've accelerated the decline, but the decline, the trajectory had already been in place. Um, and it's really, in my opinion, a failure of leadership at the top, and it's time to clean house. Department of Education goes around making excuses for why we're not doing better and doing nothing, nothing to actually help students achieve more. Um, I, I think it's very interesting that uh, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education on their website, when when talking about this particular report card said, well, it's another indicator that high-quality instruction matters. Okay, what, what does that mean, Gary? Are, are they conceding that we don't have high-quality instruction in the state? <laughs> I don't understand what they're trying to tell well, us. Well, Brenda, all we have to do is throw more money at it, and that'll fix the problem. Well, yes, we saw that earlier where they issued their Blue Ribbon Commission report on teacher retention, and that was the solution. More money, more money, more money, but nothing about accountability, and that's where we have the big gap. No one is being held accountable, and and 
I would I would argue they're they're uh, exercising a great big cover up when they basically say nothing to see here, nothing to worry about here. Let's use this for informational purposes. You know what the joke is is like denial is not just a river in Egypt. The denial right now is a state of our Department of Education, and we should not tolerate this anymore. Enough excuses. We have lost generations of kids. I mean, if you can't read in fourth grade, how are you going to learn as you proceed through the grades? If you don't know math in eighth grade, how are you going to be successful in high school? Um, we're facing a crisis. I mean, the red lights are going off, the warning signs. I mean, what is it, DEFCON 5? And we've got people going, oh, everything's fine here. Well, we just, uh, <laughs> you know, high-quality instruction matters. <laughs> These cliches drive me crazy, Gary. Yeah, Captain Kirk would be yelling red alert. Um, <laughs> so what do we, we've got numbers on uh, Catholic schools, don't we, or some, some of the other school systems I I understand well, the that national, nation's report card. What we saw, saw, and again, people are going to deny this, but basically, um, states where the schools got back into in-person instruction did slightly better, and definitely the Catholic parochial schools did better. Now, there's room for improvement across the board, but for our state, um, we've been we've been wasting a lot of time for a number of years, and um, it's time for a real wake-up call. I, uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine, former uh, national, uh, well, he's actually uh, currently a syndicated uh, radio talk show host, Kevin Jackson, about Arizona, where the money, uh, it would, his, his phrase was, the dollar follows the scholar, um, and that lets parents put their kids in schools that are teaching what they want their kids to learn. Uh, and while I'm opposed to government funding of schools... If I'm going to be compelled, forced to do it, that, I think, is a much better way. It is a much better way, Gary. And, and it's not as if, I mean, it's not as if we can't help these kids, all right? A number of these kids probably need one-on-one -on -one tutoring. If you had a system like Arizona, the parents could get them that tutoring where they can sit down and they can teach the kids how to read or how to do math. West Virginia just recently passed a, a bill where the money can follow the kids. I mean, other states are doing this. In Mississippi, they have a program not where they talk about, oh, we're gonna, we, we want to have literacy. They actually implement a program to ensure that the kids have the maximum opportunity to be able to read and and their their reading scores for fourth graders were better florida has done the same thing I mean, none of this is rocket science rocket science we don't have to you know create our own new system other states have actually shown us and my question to the state of missouri is when are we actually going to implement the things that we've been shown that actually work and again i get back to the fact that it's a leader it's a lack of leadership we have a system which allows people to point fingers and deny responsibility we need a system of accountability. I mean, where is the system? If we have a system where basically where forty percent of fourth graders are below basic in reading, where is the accountability in the classroom? If I, as a teacher, where only forty percent for forty percent of my kids can't read, do I have any consequences? Does the principal of my school have any consequences? How about the superintendent? I mean, I can go up the chain, and the answer is there is no consequence. There's no accountability. And that it doesn't mean to say teachers don't care. There are very good teachers in our classrooms across the state. Uh, but we've got a system 
that just does not implement accountability and focus on the important things. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about what's going on in the classroom. Well, I'll get back to my basic. Why don't you focus on teaching them how to read and do math? If you can do that, then we can talk about the other things. Until you can do that, uh, let's not go off into far fields where we know nobody really cares about or has concerns about exploring. You know, we have a contract uh, with the uh, school systems, and they're not fulfilling the terms of that contract. We ought to be able to sue them. Brenda Talent from the Show Me Institute with some keen insights into the, the uh, report card for schools in Missouri. Brenda, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Gary. Take care. All right, you too, Brenda Talent. Preya Samsunder is coming up. We're going to talk about the economy, the border, the whole shooting match. Right here on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It's 19 minutes after 10 o'clock. Glad to have you with us. I'm your host, Gary Nolan, your equal opportunity annoyer. Uh, I'm pleased to tell you that uh, Ron Calzone is going to be with us in a few minutes, mofirst.org. Uh, we're going to find out his take on the constitutional questions on the ballot. Um, and, and we'll do that uh, when he gets here. Uh, Mo First is like the place to go to find out what's going on in uh, state politics in the state of Missouri. But Preya Samsunder is on board with us now, Midwest Regional Communica uh, Communications Director uh, from the RNC. And uh, we've got uh, inflation and the economy and... Uh, well, uh, it just—it's it, it, just one mess after another uh, with this uh, administration. Preya, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you with us. Uh, there is um, a little—I uh, think—a misconception about the state of the economy right now, um, and, and I'm sure Biden is taking a bow, uh, thinking that the uh, the economy is is uh, on the rebound but it really is not on the rebound um the problem that uh, that he's got uh has to do with uh, the strength of the american dollar and uh, what's going on with uh, exports um it's it's not like uh, suddenly people are out there buying left and right and we're and gdp is growing because it's uh it's a hot economy. Uh, in fact, it's it's perhaps a bad sign. In fact, I would argue it is a bad sign. No, you're absolutely right. I think when you look at the state of play for the economy, it's not necessarily about what's going on in Washington, what you know Biden is seeing, what Biden is doing and talking about, because a lot of times what Biden's actually talking about doesn't match up with what everyday Americans are seeing. And so that's what we have to pay attention to. What is the perception of the economy? How are Americans looking at the economy? How is it impacting them? And right now, we're seeing the economy hurt American families as it's done for the last 18 months. We're seeing inflation rising. We're seeing uh, wages that are dropping. We're seeing uh, savings accounts dropping. We're seeing 401ks dropping. We're seeing retirement funds dropping. We're seeing... Uh, families who are not confident in the economy right now. Uh, obviously, we're seeing the stock market drop. Uh, we're seeing uh, confidence in consumer buying that it's not as high uh, as it should be. We're seeing a lot of these different things. Obviously, we're seeing companies who are 
being forced to restructure as they look at the economy and look at how prices are affecting them. When you look at all of these different things, it shows that the economy is not doing great. It's not doing great for the people. It's not doing great for states. It's not doing great for the country overall. And so as we kind of head into the midterms, that's what Americans are going to be focused on is what's the state of my 401k and my retirement? What's the state of my savings account? What's the state of my paycheck? What does that all look like? And when they see that the Biden administration is spending more money uh, than it should be, when they see that uh, they're raising taxes on everyday Americans, when they see inflation continuing to rise without any real solution to stop it, uh, they look at the economy and they don't see good things. They only see what's affecting them. And so um, I think when we kind of look at all of that holistically, you know, it's not about what the Biden administration is touting, right? It's all about what the average American is feeling. And they're feeling hurt and they're feeling pain every time they open up uh, their phone apps to look at their credit card statements or their bank statements or their 401k statements or their stock options or whatever it is. They're feeling pain. They're feeling unsure about the future. Well, we have a, a narrower trade deficit, uh, and that's uh, roughly worth, according to St. Louis, uh, I'm sorry, the Atlanta Fed, uh, 2.2 percentage points of a 3.1 hike in GDP. Uh, so it, it literally is a, a temporary blip. It, it may benefit the administration. They can brag about it now, but it's going to come back and bite them in the end. Um, so it's, it is problematic. Uh, I, I go to the grocery store and, uh, buy a few things and I'm like stunned at how much it costs. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I know every other, uh, everybody else is, uh, is aware of this. Now we've got, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, literally admonishing the administration to not dump, uh, the strategic uh, petroleum reserves. Sounds like if they if he does, they're going to uh, cut back even further, uh, which I think is insulting. But it is, you know, it, it's it's their way, I guess, of cranking up their profits, and that hurts. I talked earlier about uh, Germany, where they're tearing down windmills so they can dig for coal because they're so desperate for electricity. We know that in the Northeast, <clears throat> the, the heating. Uh, in fact, uh, nationwide, we're short on diesel fuel. This is what the world is looking like under these uh, these global warming uh, zealots. Uh, prices going through the roof. Uh, heating uh, your home is going to be expensive. This this is this is not the right direction the country should go in. Uh, let's talk about the border. What kind of numbers do we have at the border, Preya? Um, I mean, if you've been paying attention to the border for the last 18 months, you know that it's going to be another record-breaking month. Uh, you know, late Friday night of last week, the Biden administration decided to announce, you know, new border numbers in a what we call in the, the comms world a Friday news dump. So everybody's out on date night. They're watching Friday night football, uh, you know. They're out with their families, enjoying a good time, so not as many people are paying attention to the news as they should be. Um, another 227,000 illegal immigrants were encountered at the southern border in September. For 
historic say, uh, historical reference, that is the highest September number in DHS history. And now we're climbing up to nearly 2.4 million illegal immigrant encounters under the Biden administration. That's a 419% increase over the last full fiscal year of the Trump administration. You know, I don't mind people coming into the country, and even in huge numbers, I just want to know who they are, and I want to know what their background is uh, before we send them uh, screaming into the uh, into the United States. Uh, and, and that's where I, and I always argue this uh, with both Democrats and Republicans, uh, putting an artificial number is wrong, but leaving the border open and letting people just walk in, not being able to vet them at all, I think is problematic. It'd be a little hard to vet them at the numbers that are coming in now. Why are they screaming in in such huge numbers? Any idea? I mean, they look at the Biden administration. They look at how they're approaching an open borders policy. They're looking at all of the incentives that are being given to them. You know, we've heard uh, reports of them being given phones. We've heard reports of them being vaccinated. We've heard reports of them getting food and clothing. Um, A lot of these things, they might not have in their home country where they came from. Um, And so really when they hear these open border policies, when they hear that the Biden administration is just allowing them to roam free and do whatever they want, it's an incentive to cross the border. It's an incentive to come across uh, in large numbers because they know if they do, they have a better chance of, of getting across. I mean, when we think back to the Trump administration, the Trump administration was very hard-lined when it came to border crossings. They made it very clear you'd be turned away from the border. If you managed to sneak in, we would find you. We would put you on a plane or a bus or whatever mode of transportation was most convenient, and we would send you back. Uh, you know, we were very clear about, you know, the steps that uh, Republicans were willing to take to ensure that we had a safe and secure border, and that deterred people from crossing. Now we have an administration that looks at our border and, you know, according to Kamala Harris, she'll tell you flat out that there's no problem at our southern border. Uh, If you talk to those ranchers along the southern border, they'll tell you a very different story. If you talk to folks at DHS, they'll tell you a a very different story. When we look at these numbers, uh, it tells you a very different story. I mean, just look at some of the other numbers that we don't always get to talk about. the the drugs that are being poured across this open border uh, during the month of September, uh, almost two, uh, almost a ton. Excuse me, one thousand eight hundred twenty six pounds of fentanyl and ten thousand six hundred twelve pounds of meth were found were seized at the southern border in September. That's just what was seized. Imagine what else got through undetected, right? We all know and have heard the stories over the last few weeks and months of rainbow fentanyl. Uh, getting into our communities. We're hearing stories of the resurgence of the opioid epidemic in our well, communities. I, I got to tell you, if you legalized drugs, that entire black market dries up and disappears. If you could go into the drugstore and ask them for a prescription or ask them for what you need, you'd get it from a reliable source. Because you can't do that, people are going to the black market, and that's where communist China is literally killing us. We're enabling that. So that's that's a problem that that Democrats and Republicans need to fix. Uh, it's not uh, it's not just the uh, lack of controls at the border. It's our own laws. Priya, thank you so much for being on board with us.
Thank you for having me. All right, glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Dave Rowland is going to be with us, but Ron Calzone is next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. 1035, glad to have you with us. It is the uh, the Gary Nolan Show. Uh, so in cases challenging affirmative action, the court's going to confront wide-ranging arguments on history and diversity and the role of race in America. The Supreme Court, that is. Dave Rowland is going to be with us to talk about that in uh, about, uh, about 40 minutes. Uh, and uh, a message from Anson, he said, uh, Gary, I can't do it anymore. I shouldn't have taken the red pill. I miss thinking that I'm fully informed after consuming all my news from NPR and MSNBC. Do you have any suggestions on how I can lie to myself and regress back into ignorance? Nope. Don't. It's frustrating, though. It really is. Ha! Huh. Boy, is it ever. All right, so uh, MoFirst.org, that would be uh, Ron Calzone. I, I say that would be Ron Calzone. All right. Uh, that's close enough. You don't <laughs> want to stress enough. on the O. Calzone, Calzone, yeah, Calzone. That, I'm kind of waiting for you to fill in the blank. And well, I, I did it three there. times, and you, you didn't. Well, no, you have to pronounce it first. And then oh, I, I got to go get Sony. Correct. All yeah. right. And then we have the expert come on and tell you that if you did it wrong or right. I, I see. I, I, after all these years. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, he is with us. Uh, talk about constitutional questions on the ballot. And I'm curious to get his take. Ron, welcome. How are you? I'm doing super, Gary. You know, we got some great rain this week down here in Marys County, like a lot of the state did. And we were parched, so it was very welcome. And that, that, that just puts me in a better mood. <laughs> I bet it does. Um, the, the reason it puts me in a better mood is it makes my cows happy, you know, and my horses happy. And, and, uh, and if they're happy, I'm happy. Oh, there is nothing you know, better cow, than a happy cow. That's right. If your cows ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You know, <laughs> that's, that's right. What they say. Yeah. All right. We've milked this enough. It's, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. Uh, you're in un, uncommon form this morning. Yes, yes, but you can't go tit for tat, I know, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, I give up. All right. All right. You got me. You got All me. All right. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the ballot. What uh, What is your take? Well, there are five questions on the ballot for that, each of which has the potential to amend the Missouri Constitution if a simple majority of Missourians say yes to them. Just takes 50% plus one. And, um, and, I, and I'm not sure how much you've talked about him. I know that you had Representative Bill Hardwick on uh, the week you were gone. He was on with Dave, and he talked about uh, Amendment 5, which deals with creating uh, a Department of the National Guard in the Constitution, and he covered it better than I can. Uh, but we'll, we'll go to that second to last. Uh, amendment one is a, an amendment that opens up the opportunities to invade, invest state funds. And, and so it allows the treasurer to do more than he can do now, invest in the areas that he can't, already, can't invest in now based on the Constitution. Uh, and, and it looks like it's pretty innocuous. It looks like it's not a bad thing. It was proposed by the General Assembly. It started out as a simple addition to the Constitution that simply said the Treasurer may also invest in Missouri municipal bonds. But expanded past that, 
And it includes the very problematic sentence that creates, that, that makes uh, Missouri first policy be a no vote on Amendment 1. It adds the sentence that says, the treasurer may also invest in other reasonable and prudent financial instruments and securities as otherwise provided by law. So, you know, unpacking that, that means that the legislature, which is full of politicians that just got done handing out a bunch of state money in the form of tax credits to, uh, you know, particularly to ostensibly the ag industry, it allows that same group of politicians to decide that the treasurer can invest money in whatever they say is uh, reasonable and prudent or a reasonable and prudent financial instrument. So uh, our take is is that we need more restrictions on how the government uses our money, more constitutional restrictions, not fewer. So uh, we recommend a no vote on Amendment 1. And I'll take a breath to see if you have any comments. No, I, I love your insight. Um... Okay. Then, then there is no Amendment 2. Uh, amendment 3 is, of course, the one that you're hearing a lot about. That's the marijuana provision, recreational marijuana, they call it. And although our policy is that we believe in decriminalizing marijuana and most other victimless crimes, by the way, we don't think that Amendment 3 is the way to do it. Amendment 3 adds 39 legal size pages to the Missouri Constitution. You know, if you're going to say uh, it's, it can't be against the law to smoke pot, you know, you can do it in one sentence in the Constitution. You don't need 38 pages. So why do they have 38 pages where they could do it with one sentence? Well, it's because they use those 38 pages to set up monopolistic and mercantilistic, a monopolistic and mercantilistic scheme that we believe invites corruption and limits market opportunities to just a few connected entities. You know, that's actually what we're seeing happening uh, disastrously with the medical marijuana provision. Uh, so I think that's fairly common knowledge that it creates a marijuana czar who has expansive powers to affect who profits from the industry. But something nobody's talking about is, is that this constitutional provision actually creates criminal penalties in the Constitution for use and possession of marijuana that can't be eliminated or reduced legislatively. So if you convince the legislature that they just should leave people alone if they want to smoke pot. By the way, I've never, ever, ever, ever smoked pot. Yeah, I don't even either. I don't even take aspirin. Okay, that's how square I am. I don't even dr I don't drink, and I was raised in a beer joint. Yeah, uh, and me neither. I don't I don't touch alcohol. That's I'm very square. This isn't because Ron wants to smoke pot, you know, or countenances. I would definitely counsel against most people smoking pot. But I also don't think it's the state's job to tell you what you can and you can't do as long as you're not harming somebody else. So, but the point is, is that. You know, if we could convince the legislature of that, and they wanted to just totally decriminalize uh, use and possession of marijuana, this constitutional amendment actually will prevent that because it enshrines in the Constitution uh, a, a penalty for possessing uh, and using marijuana beyond the limits that are prescribed in this constitutional amendment. Now, to put that in perspective, there's no other place except one no other place except one in the Missouri Constitution where criminal penalties are prescribed. 
the Constitution is about putting limits on government and protecting your rights, not creating criminal penalties for things. But Amendment 3 actually creates criminal penalties. By the way, just FYI, the only other time we find a criminal penalty prescribed in the Constitution is from the 2016 ballot measure uh, that, it, it, that limits campaign finance. You know, so it was very well ill-advised, and, and this is well ill-advised, so uh, we recommend a no vote on Amendment 3. I wonder if that was crafted um, so that it would fail. I mean, because, uh, you know, we're giving a monopoly to a group. Um, and it, 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 it's just not palatable. Well, I don't know. You know, that's what happened with medical marijuana. And, you know, my understanding, I don't have any first-hand knowledge of this, but I've been told by connected people, it's the people that already have, you know, the, the state-authorized right, quote-unquote, to, to have medical marijuana dispensaries that want to expand this because they already have a foot in the door in the industry and they're going to be able to exclude competition. You know, I was, so, I, I'd, I'd gotten an email yesterday, and I addressed it on the air from a uh, from a, a listener that I know, a friend actually, a kind of well, more of an acquaintance, but uh, about uh, Colorado and their legalizing marijuana. And you you can imagine with all the taxes and all the regulations and everything uh, that it's more expensive to legally buy than it is to go to the black market. Uh, they've created a, a a problem instead of solving one. Uh, and that's what I see happening here. I, I agree. So this is, is mercantilism a term that you're familiar with? Yes. So, it's, so for your listeners, it's, you know, some people call it crony capitalism. I don't like that term because it impugns capitalism and impure capitalism is not evil at all. Uh, but uh, a guy that I'm sure that you and I both appreciate, Murray Rothbard, who's mm -hmm. of course now deceased, uh, he defined mercantilism this way. He said mercantilism, which reached its height in Europe of the 17th and 18th century, was a system of statism which employed economic fallacy to build up a structure of imperial state power as well as special subsidy and monopolistic privilege to individuals or groups favored by the state. We actually fought the war against King George over mercantilism, British mercantilism. And that's what Amendment 3 is. It's enshrining mercantilism or cronyism in the Missouri Constitution. It's bad any way you cut it. I agree. Let's move on. Amendment 4. Amendment 4 is one that I think probably gets the most support from conservatives. Uh, this is one that they say is going to help um, keep from defunding the police. And, and it allows the uh, legislature, uh, let me see, I, I need to get it up here. It allows the legislature to, um, to, to increase the minimum funding for the Kansas City Police Department. Now, the thing to understand about that is, is that the Kansas City Police Department um, is run by the state rather than local residents. We think that that's a fundamental mistake that local people should be able to run their own law enforcement agencies. This further enshrines state control of the Kansas City Police Department, and, and, uh, and we think it's a bad idea for that reason. But in the details of the language, it says that before December 31st, 2026, 
the General Assembly may by law increase minimum funding for a police force established by a state police board of police. There's only one. That's the one for Kansas City. Uh, the thing to understand is, is after December 31st, 2026, that can't be changed. So, in effect, what you end up with is a potential for a ratcheting up of the funding for a police department that may or may not need that much money in the future. We have a similar minimum expenditure uh, provision in the Constitution for state education. So state education is, is a, has a minimum percentage of the state budget prescribed by the Constitution. So if you and I get our way and, and we shift education away from the state into the private hands, you still have by and, – and, ed, and public education doesn't need as much money as it does now, say 10 years from now – uh, that money still has to be spent whether it's needed or not because it's in the Constitution. So for that reason, we, we say vote no on Amendment 4. Amendment 4 is, uh, has, a, has more straight control of something that should be local, and it ratchets, ratchets up funding that may need to be decreased in the future. Yeah, I'm curious uh, about the history of that, how it is that the state uh, is running the, the uh, city of Kansas, uh, their police department. But hang on, Ron. I'm up against the clock, and you've got more, so... I'm going to put you on hold, hope that you can hang on and then come back. You're listening to The Gary Nolan Show on the Zimmer Radio Network. It's uh, 10.53. Glad to have you with us. Ron Calzone, MoFirst.org, talking about his take on constitutional questions that are going to be on the ballot. Uh, we were talking about Kansas City uh, and their police department. And uh, this is just kind of an aside, Ron, because I don't know how it is that the state is in control of a local police department when and how did that happen well you know i'm i am not uh up to speed on the history of it i know just enough to be dangerous so maybe if i get something wrong a caller will call in and correct me but from uh 1874 uh the kansas city police department has been under state control well with an interruption i'll talk about in just a minute uh, the Board of Police Commissioners, which is appointed by the state, uh, was the one that selected their chief of police and, and overall governed the police department. Uh, interestingly, and, and by the way, George Caleb Bingham, a name you might be familiar with, was the, was the president of the Board of Police Commissioners at the time. Um, later in the 1930s, Control of the police department in Kansas City did go back into local control. But if you remember, that was about the time Tom Pendergast was running the show in Kansas City. And so you saw all kinds of corruption. And in 1939, uh, the state took over control of the Kansas City police again. And again, it was largely because of corruption that the state controlled them and took them back over. Uh, I'm not suggesting that there's not still corruption or that there wouldn't be more or less corruption if local people uh, control their police department. I think there's, from what I hear, a lot of corruption in the, in the St. Louis Police Department. Uh, however, it's, a, it's fundamentally wrong for people outside of your area to control your policing. And, and so sometimes you have to let people clean up their own messes. And, and that's why, in principle... We think that local people should control their own local law enforcement. Yeah, I think you're right. It's just bizarre that uh, that it's that way after all this time. All right, let's move on. Well, we got one... be, and it's and it's not constitutional, you know. So the point about Amendment Four is is it enshrines this concept in the Constitution. 
It doesn't require it, but it's still enshrined, and I think it makes it that much harder to, to return local control back to them. So, Amendment 5. I, yes. I have been talking fast because I know our time is limited. Amendment 5, uh, this one is the only yes among all of the five issues that are going to be on the ballot. And, and the reason that we think it's a yes, that which should be a yes, is because it ends up putting more state control of the Missouri National Guard in, in place as opposed to what we have right now. And it, and it also uh, prescribes the main re- mission or reason for existence of the National Guard. The state control comes in the form of making sure that the adjutant general is appointed by and is serving at the pleasure of the governor with the advice and consent of the Senate. So that means that if you have an adjutant general that's not doing what you think the adjutant general should do, he can be removed. And that places more control of the guard in the hands of the state as opposed to the feds. This very simple provision also prescribes the purpose of the guard. And the purpose of the guard is expanded not from just upholding the Constitution of the United States, but to also uphold the Constitution of Missouri and protect the constitutional rights and civil liberties of Missourians. And so that's a new mission. And it's a, and it's a um, you know, obviously the mission that all governments should be uh, putting first and foremost, and that is protect our rights and our liberties. So we're, we're a yes on Amendment 5. But everything else uh, doesn't sound good. After, uh, after getting your explanation, everything else doesn't sound good to me at all. That's right. And there's one more that's not numbered. And this one simply asks, shall we hold a constitutional convention? And that constitutional convention being referred to by that ballot question is a convention to amend or replace the Missouri Constitution, not the United States Constitution. And that measure is put on the ballot by constitutional provision. It has to go on the ballot every 20 years since 1945. It's been on the ballot three times. Each time, only a third of the voters have said yes. And we're glad that they're saying no, because the Constitution lays out uh, the, the methodology that you use to select the delegates to this constitutional convention. And the bottom line is, is all of the inside political operatives select the delegates. All right. All right, Ron, I'm out of time. MoFirst.org. You want to know what's going on in Jeff City? Trust me, Ron Calzone is the guy. MoFirst.org is the website. Ron, thanks for being on board with us. Thank you, Gary. All right. Uh, coming up, Dave Rowland is going to be with us. He's got some uh, very interesting cases, including one in the Supreme Court. Uh, but when we come back, retirement. How old do you want to be when you retire? And how much money you think you'll need? Just curious. Kick that around next. The Gary Nolan Show. The Zimmer Radio Network. This is The Gary Nolan Show.